Welcome to the House of Strauss. Yeah, go for it. Stars hang with stars, winners hang with winners. Welcome to the House of Strauss podcast. I am delighted to have Katie Herzog on of Blocked and Reported Fame, though, and I've not discussed this with her, I think she hates sports. Is it true, Katie? Do you hate sports? Just off the bat, interrogating you. I don't hate sports. I am interested in the cultural issues surrounding sports, so I don't personally Mm. watch sports except like when my in-laws have a senior pickleball tournament. Sometimes I'll watch that. But my interest in sports is purely around the culture war issues. So, like, my favorite yeah. player naturally is is Myers Leonard, uh, <laughs> the seven foot anti Semite. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God! What a deep cut uh, to, to know to know Myers Leonard. Who I feel I feel bad for because <laughs> totally. I legitimately. I mean, I can just be frank about it. I don't think he's the smartest no, guy in the world. No, that's why I like this guy. I actually caught a little bit of a Bucks game last night when I was at a restaurant. And the only reason I know that the Bucks have a basketball or that Milwaukee has a basketball team is because I follow Myers Leonard on Instagram. And I follow mm. him because I find him very fascinating. Like he strikes me as like kind of dumb, but also yeah. a, ve- a genuinely very good hearted person. And so for him to get caught in this culture war issue over something that he probably genuinely didn't know was a slur and for that yeah. to, to derail his career, I find very fascinating. Oh, I completely believed him when yeah. I saw the when I saw the clip of him on the stream and his explanation. Yeah. I think he legitimately did not know what kike meant. Right. And um I hey, it counted for nothing. I, I was willing to welcome back uh, welcome him back with, with open arms, but there's a bit of a kabuki that everybody has to do, and it's so absurd. And this is I guess the stuff my website does sometimes is just notice how silly all the kabuki is nobody's allowed to laugh at what's funny a lot of the time i felt that powerfully during i'm not sure how much you followed any of this but there was a lot of sturm and drang revolving around the nba Mm -hmm. post floyd while they were trying to do a bubble playoffs during the covid and their concession towards social justice was that the players wore social justice jerseys so you right. had some players with their actual names and it became a status thing it became like a twitter blue thing where um if you were lebron james you would use your your name because you're a big brand but if you're another player maybe if you're a more conservative player, you have education reform on, on your back or that there was how many more, how many more killed by, by police violence was on the back. And then you're watching how many more or Black Lives Matter steal yeah. the ball from education reform. And the height of absurdity was the, there's this Slovenian superstar named Luka Doncic, and he had the word for equality in Slovenian on the back of his jersey. But of course, it was just this jumble of consonants that was just stretched across his back that uh-huh. no normie fan could have. You're, you're just basically asking the fans to suss out yeah. who was who and who was a slogan and whose name was real. And I'm just laughing at the whole thing. But everybody's so somber and serious and you just can't. There's something there where things are getting especially funny because everybody's having to pretend to be so serious. Yeah. Did anybody have the like Gazden flag, the snake don't tread on me on the back of their jersey? I would love to see that. 
The word on the street was that education reform was a little wink and a nod from the secret whistle. cons. Yeah, a little dog <laughs> whistle. That was you know, the conservative players, especially yeah. the white conservative players. And the NBA is funny when it comes to the white American players because my running theory is it only goes it only goes two ways. Mm-hmm. They're either super red pilled con and filled with resentment given Mm -hmm. their workplace Mm -hmm. Um, or they're in the total other direction, cringe, self-apologia. And often that guy is actually both guys and he's one guy in public and the other guy in private. And it's a a, a definite, um, it's a particular subculture, the white American NBA subculture. And it's been through a lot of, uh, I don't even know what to call it. Um, a lot of forced signaling that many of the people doing it are conscious of in a way that in the world that you come from um, at The Stranger and, and public radio, I think a lot of those people who are performing at some level believe the performance, but some of these players don't believe it at all. <laughs> yeah. Well, this I mean, you would know more about this to me, and I'm sure that in some respect, there has always been a political element to sports, you know, going back to uh, uh What's his name? Jesse Owens, you know, even further than that. I'm I'm sure there's always been some element of that. But now this sort of virtue signaling on the part of like the NFL and the NHL, I find it very funny. Like we're still talking about jocks here. And it hasn't been, it's been, you know, it's been a while since I was in a, a high school locker room. But the idea that the jocks would be the people sort of standing up for like the theater fags, Mm. there's just, (laughs) I mean, have things really changed that much in the past 20 years? No, no. no they really actually haven't. Um, yeah. And I could say that with some authority. I mean, I'm not obviously a, a, an NBA athlete, but I've been in the locker room. And yeah. it, there was this moment um, after the Trump grab him by the pussy. Mm-hmm. What do we even call that? Imbroglio? I don't know. <laughs> uh, but there were some players who were saying, that's not locker room talk. We would never right. talk like that. Right. And like, look, you know, Trump's a wild ass Right. crazy piece of shit sleazebag but yeah you guys do say stuff like that all the time even when we're around and it, there is just so much there's just so much artifice and i think especially now because these guys i mean maybe Meyer Leonard Myers Leonard is dumb but they're 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 not dumb enough to unsee the social incentives and understand what things they say will get will get media applause versus what things they say won't and so at a certain point they do start cupping their ear and playing to the crowd and saying things that bear just absolutely no relation to how they really are and so myers leonard is he the sense i get having really never watched a like full nba game is he i would assume that he's not quite as good as like Kyrie Irving or somebody who can yeah. be like actually anti-Semitic, but he's such an important part of the team <laughs> that they're going to keep him on the roster. Yeah, there's some sort of scale that yeah. uh, that's used for that of how much of a <laughs> Jew hater you can be yeah. based on. And, you know, uh, you know Michael Jordan could have. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's like uh, preaching Farrakhan. <laughs> he could have he, he could have shot at you on Fifth Avenue and gotten away with it. Um, yeah. So Mar- he's a, a role player. He's pretty replaceable, but he could conceivably be helpful to a team. Mm-hmm. Um I believe he's repped by CAA, which is a pretty mm. powerful agency. And one of the ways agencies can demonstrate value is to not drop you uh, when you're in a controversy, but actually get you back in the good graces. And in the case of CAA, and this is 
other topic that comes up on my site. Um, there are a bunch of conflicts of interest, and they're the best position to give you a good media rebranding um, mm-hmm. because the top reporter at ESPN is also represented by CAA, as is a bunch of the people he hired because he has you know staffing power. So they're all repped by the same agency, and you will rarely see players bashed if they're repped by that agency because right. of that conflict of interest. Right. Um, so, I mean, look, it's funny. I, I think some of the things I write could be perceived as critical of CAA, but if I was a player, I would just go with CAA. I mean, I'm protecting my, my reputational flank here. Um, I want to just check that, make sure I didn't make that up, uh, because that would be fairly foolish, but, um, yeah, it's, uh, he's replaceable. So it wasn't obvious that he could get, he, he could get back in the league. Um, and I think he, like I said, I think he should, he's dumb. We should allow for that. (laughs) He should be allowed to be dumb. Athletes especially (laughs) are allowed to be dumb. We're not talking quarterbacks here. Quarterbacks need to be smart. Yeah, it's a management position. Yeah. yeah, some people. And that's also one of the idiosyncrasies of the NBA is that the biggest selection pressure is height. Myers Leonard is seven feet tall. Yeah. Um, and I feel like we can just talk more freely about this, frankly, because he's white. We can just freely kind of talk about that. but. It's almost like random as far as how smart you are when the biggest selection pressure is height. So you have a locker room that's shared by people who could have been doctors with people who just can't – he can't follow the simplest mm-hmm. of instructions. Mm-hmm. And they're coworkers. And I think people who have worked in the sorts of jobs we work in can almost take that for granted because right. if you're in – you know, if you're in a job that requires uh, a bachelor's degree, there's been a lot of sorting uh, to get you there. And you're more similar to the people around you, even if you hate them and you perceive all these differences, you're more sim- you're more similar than you even know. And the NBA locker room is just there's just vast chasms between the coworkers, which is also why it's one of the more hilarious, uh, hilarious working environments. What do you think is the professional sport that attracts the highest IQ? Is that a dangerous question to ask? <laughs> well, they've eliminated the Wonderlick. Uh, what is because that? Because the Wonderlick was the IQ test that they would give players entering the NFL draft, which, okay. uh, you know, it's you can tell why they eliminated it, but it would be public. You would actually see everybody's score and you could see what positions did better than others. I mean, some of the things that people know now, I don't think would have been so intuitive, like mm-hmm. how offensive line got the best Wonderlick scores because apparently you have to know all the plays and all the permutations of the plays. I think a casual fan might just go, well, that's just the fat guy who pushes the other fat guy. But um, there's a lot of thinking that goes into it. Um, I I don't know. There, there, it's, it's less that certain sports are perceived as smarter than other sports and more that positions are perceived as smarter than other positions. Uh, in baseball, the pitchers are, tend to be thinkier than the hitters. And with hitters, you do have thinky hitters, but there's a little bit of maybe you need a bit of zen. Maybe it helps to be dumber. This was a whole topic. I was at the MIT uh, Sloan Analytics Conference a few months ago. And um, I was watching a panel, I think it was moderated by Michael Lewis, and he was asking very directly to this guy who writes about sports and track, and he had run a 401 mile, and that, that much to his chagrin, that that was what he topped out at, and he couldn't get the four minute. And Michael Lewis bluntly asked him, given what he had written about, could you have run the four minute mile if you were stupider? 
Mm-hmm. And and he agreed. I don't know much about track. I don't know much about how that works. But this guy's uh, fervent belief was if he was a dumber man, he would have been able to pull off this goal that his life had revolved around. So Interesting. there's a lot of push pull to it. Um, I mean, a lot of not push pull, but uh, trade offs. And I, I tend to think that in a vacuum, it helps to be smart in sports. And I know coaches who've said you can be a good player if you're stupid, but you can't be a great player. Um, but there's the other part where the smarter you are, you're more likely to be a neurotic. Mm-hmm. And is it helpful to you if you're going to kick a field goal if you're thinking too much? Um, probably not. Uh, and so, yeah, I generally think I'm not really answering your question well, just because I think the sports are so specialized that it's hard to get an overall sense of how smart you need to be. That's my basic, uh, squeamish weaseling out of an answer. It would be interesting to know, like the, the one sport that I was, I've ever been really deeply involved in was freestyle whitewater kayaking. So a very Mm. niche sport. Uh, I was I was lucky enough to be doing it in the late 90s and early 2000s when there was this moment when everybody thought it was going to be like the next the next X Games and there was actually money and sponsors or things that is sort of dried up. Uh, but there is this there's an element of, of inherent danger in that sport and not in freestyle as much as right. uh, racing, um, throwing yourself yeah. off of big waterfalls and stuff like that. And I would assume that there is some sort of correlation between risk and intelligence and eroticism. Mm, and yeah. that's a sport where I think overthinking can can really hinder your performance. Yeah, that would make sense. And sometimes cognitively, there's just something different about you that's unrelated to intelligence. I think Alex Honnold, uh, mm-hmm. the oh, yeah. guy who cl- climbed El Cap and yeah. was the centerpiece of that documentary, Free Solo, Something is missing in that guy. Mm -hmm. There's some part of his brain that would allow you to feel danger Mm -hmm. that he doesn't have. And it would be unimaginable for him to have the career he's had if he if he had what everybody else does. He just doesn't. And I don't even know whether to call what he does brave because it just seems like he lacks – the fear mechanism. Yeah. It, just it seems like he has a like a, a depressed central nervous system in some way. Mm. Uh, I think he talked about that in the documentary a little bit. He also seems a little bit spectrumy. Um, yeah. But yeah, this my brother is a is a real extreme athlete, and I and I think that the things that it takes for him to to experience some adrenaline rush, the bar is just much higher than a normal person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wonder if it, it does wear off and you start to chase it. I, I can't I can't really relate to that. I don't I don't need to have more of that in my life. But I hey, this 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 is not the precipitating uh topic for, for me having you on. It's actually I think your podcast is fantastic. That's that's the reason that I wanted to have you on. And I I've had Jesse on, your your co-host, and I think I've said complimentary things, but I'm taking your lead and I don't want to compliment him too much. Yeah, and please so, don't. Please don't. Yeah. That is the the uh the thing that is going to kill us is is the presence of Jesse Single. People keep telling me that we have good chemistry. I'm like, why would you say that to me? Why? Don't insult <laughs> me like that. That's going to ruin it. That's uh-huh. uh, it, it's true, but if you know that to be the case, it cannot be the the abuser and the abusee <laughs> dynamic will not be just perfectly what it what it needs to be. There's a Heisenberg's uncertainty principle at play here when it I comes to that. how mean you are. 
I have I maintain that I have good chemistry and Jesse is just there, but <laughs> anybody you can be yeah. replaced by anybody. Yeah. Well, I, but you know, in a weird way, I think the chemistry is such an important part of the show. But people who aren't regular listeners might be mistaken about the the nature of the show at this point and its appeal. I'm just positing this. I'm throwing this out there. Um, I think it's a more reported show than people understand. I, I also think that. There's, you know, people in media, whatever, they might just make certain assumptions based on people who've been angry at you guys because you wrote about uh, detransitioners or, you know, uh, kids in the trans issue. And that became this really uh, fraught topic that I don't think people really thought through in this honest way in media, but they just reacted to other people reacting. Um, And I listened to this podcast and I think you've talked about how it's about internet bullshit, but it is fascinating. I feel most of these episodes now, it's this twisting, winding, narr- like gripping narrative of these various internet controversies of people betraying each other and accusing each other. And maybe you think the good guy at the beginning isn't the good guy at the end, or it's a little bit confounded. Um, I, I'm wondering, has that been a progression for, like, do you feel as though the show has slowly become more of this, more of this thing that almost feels like this American life, but anchored by your two personalities? I, I do. Thank you for saying that. Um, the show, it's it's grown in a really organic way, both in terms of the audience and in terms of what we talk about. Um, we obviously talk about a lot of trans stuff. Jesse in particular does a ton of reporting on that. I think there's some trans fatigue at this point, although it's such a, it's like the culture war issue. And, and it, it does touch on so many different, different elements of life. It's sort of, an, I think, inherently interesting Although I'm sick of it myself personally, but yeah, it is, it is, I think more reported than most people would assume. And that has changed somewhat. Like when we started the show, we were doing, it was a lot more like a, you know, I think Michael Moynihan calls it the fifth column cover band. And it was a lot more like that. It was, (laughs) it was more commenting on just whatever was happening in the week's news and I think we've realized over time, and, and Jesse and I have never really had a conversation about strategy or like how to run a business. It's remarkable that we haven't just burned the whole thing down on accident at this point. But what we realized that the things that the strengths that he and I both have, we tend to be we're both really skeptical people, and so we tend to believe that or just assume that the stories that we're hearing in the media don't tell the full story. Or there's things that are happening that aren't being covered or are being picked up by the by the media that are interesting. And so what I think we're good at is picking out the threads that other people aren't talking about. And just in terms of uh, of audio storytelling, you know, it is it is different than than writing. And both of us have a writing background, so it's not it hasn't come totally natural to us. But just I think over the three years that we've done the show, and and I worked in public radio before this, and have always been a big public radio listener and a big podcast listener, we're sort of imitating the things about, about shows that we like. So it's yeah. not highly produced like This American Life or like The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling. We don't have a, a real producer. But what I look for in a, in a good story, whether it's audio or it's written or it's television or whatever, is surprise. And so to me, that's kind of the element that I want to bring to the show is I, I do want, I want it to be entertainment. You know, we want to inform people, but first and foremost, to me, the most important thing is to entertain. 
Um, and so it's just sort of, you know, we're, we're always evolving, I guess. Uh, sometimes we're backsliding, but we're trying to evolve. And so yeah. it, it really, I, I think if I went back and listened to the first episodes, we would find some, some, some real shifts in thinking. Um, and then, you know, the show, one, what we have and what you have now too is we don't have the real benefit for us is that we don't have coworkers and we don't have bosses. And so not having the pressure to conform, we have the freedom to say what we want. Like we were talking about one of our recent shows was about a me too story um, that took place in the gaming world. And this guy was essentially falsely accused. And we were talking about, we were both working uh, you know, in the media during, during the, the height of the me too era and there was such social pressure from within institutions, online, on Twitter, within not even just within the media, but like within your own friend groups on your, you know, whatever your family was saying on Facebook to conform to this one particular narrative that even for reporters, people who are supposed to be skeptical, people, skeptical, people whose job is to get the whole story. A lot of us, and I include myself in this category, just didn't do our jobs. Because mm. to stand up and say, you know, I think maybe the story about Al Frank and it sounds a little bit more complicated. We should wait or we should, you know, do more reporting was a almost a dangerous position to put yourself in. And so for us, we don't have that anymore. We don't have the social pressure from from colleagues. It still exists on Twitter, but Jesse has left Twitter and I tend to not really give a shit about what people on Twitter say. Um, so, you know, as you've, as, you've, as you've probably seen yourself, there's just a lot of freedom uh, and independence. Yeah. Uh, certainly true. And uh, I listened to that episode and I found it, I, I enjoyed that part where the two of you were discussing how you might've altered what you were saying, or at least been a little more reluctant how it altered your decision-making to a degree, which is, it, it was interesting to hear you two say that because you're, you kind of stand, stand out as people who won't hew to those sorts of pressures. So to see that admission, um, I thought was honest. I think we all do that to a certain extent. It's so easy to avoid certain stories or to rationalize. I mean, I could always be doing something different and that's how that pressure works. But I want to, I want to uh, shift back to something you were talking about earlier, because I find this so fascinating that in a weird way, you, um, and you mentioned, uh, you mentioned, uh, Barry's podcast. It's almost like you're taking the torch of these institutions that can't do what they used to do and carrying it forward while representing people they loathe. I mean, is that a good, <laughs> is that a good encapsulation of the dynamic? And to explain, I, there was such amazing content, especially in public radio for years in the early 2000s, I think before social media reached critical mass. Um, and then all these institutions had their various paroxysms, their Mexican standoffs, though they would never use that term. Um, <laughs> Latinx standoff. <laughs> yeah, the Latinx standoffs yeah. uh, that left uh, <laughs> left many, <laughs> um, many, many slain. Um, and I find that I don't even know if I have a good question built around this other than it's so interesting to hear the influences of on the media, This American Life, Radio Lab, you know, these whatever, yeah. whatever you want to throw out there from these uh, from this era, but almost exclusively from content makers who are regarded by these institutions yeah. as beyond the pale and horrible. Yeah. Uh, do you have any thoughts? Do you have any thoughts on that? 
I mean, I think you're completely right about that. I would love to go back if I could time machine, go back to, you know, the early 2000s and listen. I guess I don't really need time machine to do this because the internet exists. I could just go into the archives. But <laughs> yeah. shows yeah, shows like on the media or even, you know, John Stewart's show, if you watch old John Stewart and then you watch his new show, the tone is really different. The commitment to rigor seems a lot less now. But my, what I wonder sometimes is, did those shows actually change or did I change? And probably the answer the show, is a little the, bit of both. The show has yeah. cha- yeah. changed. I think it's 90% yeah. the show has changed, maybe yeah. 95. Yeah. I mean, I think that there are certain narratives. I, I'm interjecting and telling you your own answer. It's so not a shitty interviewer. But um, I, I think the show has legitimately changed, though there are topics that – at least speaking from my own perspective, I might be more skeptical skeptical of now when those topics are broached um, than I was back then. Mm-hmm. And especially when you're younger, things just seem simpler. You totally. know, you you have a righteous sense of bad guys and good guys, and anything that plays into that, you might not be as skeptical as as maybe you should be. And I think also part of getting older is that you watch idealistic ideas fail and go disastrously. Um, and that makes you more skeptical and maybe saps some of that drive and some of that righteousness. So I think if I watched some of those shows from back then or I listened to them, um, I I, w- I would do it with a more skeptical ear or eye. But then again, these shows, John Stewart accepted, actually weren't so political. I mean, that's <laughs> the other thing. They were mostly driven by the idea of, hey, here's an interesting story and that – just based because I don't listen to them anymore. I'm just basing it on your tweets since it seems like you still do. Mm-hmm. It seems like that's gone. I think you're right. And I, I think so much of this has to do with two things. The Trump election won because after the Trump election, there was this uh, Trump broke people's brains. And I think there was a, a conscious like on the media. If you listen to their episode after Trump won, there's this fight essentially between Brooke Gladstone and, and um, Bob Garfield, who was later ousted from the show, but they have this really contentious conversation about what the places of their show now. And they're basically arguing about whether or not they should become an activist show who's with the explicit yeah. goal almost of getting this man out of the office. And that's kind of what the show has become, not just about yeah. Trump, but you just, when I listen oh. to that now, it's almost painful because I was such a fan of that show and their astute critical analysis and now you can like I, I trust them to mostly get it right when they're talking about things like right wing radio or Fox News. I think that's probably mostly right. But when they're talking about, you know, it, trans issues, I think what they're doing is mostly wrong. And I only know this because I happen to be really well versed in the subject. And so to me, the concern, you know, it's the Gelman amnesia effect. Yeah. You know, and so when I hear these shows and, and I hear things that I know they're getting wrong. There are hundreds of thousands of people who are absorbing these messages and getting bad information. They're getting misinformation, but not the kind of mm. misinformation that the MSNBC misinformation squad is going to call out on Twitter. Well, and isn't the epilogue of that conversation that Brooke Gladstone knifed Bob Garfield yeah. and and pushed him out? And yeah. uh, I was quite scandalized by the whole thing. I got to say, it was very much like mom and dad are are getting divorced. I, I didn't yeah. know that they. It turned you know, out mom it's and like, dad hated each other. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in a in a weird way, I feel like your podcast with Jesse is just what would have happened if Bob Garfield and Brooke Gladstone were honest with us instead yeah. of pretending yeah. to be so collegial. Um, yeah. And 
it, that was well that was another feature of this whole era isn't it that people hide their own petty grievances and their politicking in the workplace inside of these causes to make them seem to, to buy them some moral authority maybe to lie to themselves about it but we're just watching the petty humanity take place the game of thrones machinations and I don't know exactly what went down it on the media, but I, I wouldn't be shocked if that was yet another instance of what we see again and again. I think you're uh, I think you're correct about that. Yeah. And we have lots of examples of that. You know, I think there tends to be a almost a type of person who sort of can, you know, drive colleagues crazy. I think I was one of those people, maybe a little bit contrary in, in, in nature. Uh, and then you can use these these social justice causes to push out the person you don't like or are resentful or jealous of in some cases. I think Mike Pesca is another example of that. Yeah. Although I, I personally find I, the idea that anyone wouldn't like Mike Pesca is difficult to imagine <laughs> he's, because he is he's so, so likable. <laughs> he really is. He really is. Yeah. Mike Pesca, I mean, I'm still mad about that. He got absolutely screwed by Slate, but he also got screwed by NPR. You know, he'd been a staffer there forever and he was a sports guy. Now, I don't think they even have a sports guy anymore. And uh, they didn't, yeah. you know, even after this investigation essentially found him like not guilty of the things he was accused of, NPR still didn't bring him back. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if I should even divulge conversations I had with him. I mean, I don't know Mike Pesca well, but I gave him a call. Um, around that time, just because I think it's a very lonely, it's yes. a very lonely place to be. And a lot of the other people in media are almost sneeringly contemptuous of anybody who talks about it. But I think yeah. psych, uh, psychically, it's, it's horrific yeah. for anybody going through that kind of thing as well as he was taking it. And I remember having a conversation with him about, is it possible that you could even find a single producer in this world in New York media who would be willing to suffer that reputational harm and, and produce for you. And I, I I didn't have an answer to that question. I operate out of my house. I don't have a sense of these things. Um, our worlds, in a way, have a lot of overlap, but I've I've, to my knowledge, never lost any friends doing what I doing what I do. Like That's maybe, interesting. Yeah. You know, you know, maybe a friend or two, maybe, you know, maybe people are more reluctant or I, I didn't get a call that I was expecting to get. But as far as I know, and maybe if I participated more in Twitter, I'd have more of an understanding of who's really betrayed me. I haven't lost any friends versus your world. It seems as though people are much more prone to betrayal or your old yeah. world, I should say. Yeah, I mean, the world that I'm in is, and you know, Mike, I think, too, experienced a lot of that, just the number of people who didn't stand up and defend him when they should have former colleagues of his, you know, people working in public radio or working in, in audio. Uh, for me, it was less about just so for your listeners who, who aren't aware, my first sort of foray into becoming a problematic person was in 2017. I wrote a piece about detransitioners for The Stranger. And... um and so for me, my friends, or I know you're, this, there's no video on this podcast. So for your listeners, you can't see my face. I'm, I'm gay and, uh, or can't see my haircut. And, um, <laughs> I was about so, to say, like, what is this like a new capacity of, of chat GPT that people are gay using? Real, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's a whole other topic. Yeah. So <laughs> I, my I friend, have, I, I, as an aside, I, I did read that. Okay. Never mind. The, I, like it's a wit thing is what I – but you don't have a wide face. That's no, all I know I have about the face. face. Yeah. Um, so so my friends for my entire adulthood have been – I was in the queer community 
And there you cannot find a group of smaller minded people in the queer community, which is interesting because they might talk about being sex positive and they might have 15 different partners and they're polycule and be into like weird blood play and diapers and shit like that. But not that I'm talking about anybody in specific, anybody in particular, but there is not, you're, you know, you're more likely to, to find, you know, I don't know, somebody with a, with some bizarre kink that one person has in the world and like a, a Trump voter in any, in any queer scene, it is really homogenous. You know, it's that thing where like everybody tries to look different. So they all end up looking alike. That was sort of my social scene for, for, from the ages of like 20 to 35. And so those people, the friends that I had, almost all of them, ditched me after this piece and after the podcast came out and after various Jeez. different I made like various different uh statements that were not were not accepted within the community. And of course nothing. I'm not an actual racist, I'm not an actual misogynist, but I do believe in things like due process and freedom of speech. Yuck. Yeah. And so I think <laughs> I think yeah, I think the I think that's just really a, a product of the of the community of the, the company that I kept. Mm. Um so Jesse, for instance, his friends are normal. They're they're into video games and sports and shit like that, and my friends were into you know protesting and going to queer shows and things like that, and so there's less room for dissent. Yeah, I to be honest, I didn't even want to ask you about it um, because I've just noticed I, I've noticed that it's hard for people to talk about it when yeah. this sort of thing happens, and even if they don't have any objection with you asking about it. Um, I think I really fucked up an interview with Chuck Klosterman uh, mm. for the podcast. And it's a really good interview because he's just – he's fascinating extemporaneously. And I think his his book in the 1990s was the best thing I read that year. Um, and so I think overall a good podcast. But I started asking him about some of the blowback and and I could just tell that it gets people in a different frame of mind. It almost brings them back to that thing and also – it's really hard to defend oneself and sound reasonable and mm -hmm. it's just it, – it's not going to flow typically. There are some people I would ask about that because that's their thing. We had Nick Wright on. He's on one of the sports debate shows and his, his, his stock and trade is people screaming at him and being angry and yeah. him yeah. marketing that and, and everything else. And that's somebody I know I can ask about that. But I had even made a mental note going in to not ask you about it just because – I never know how the interview goes yeah. after it. I think it happened with Jesse, frankly. I think mm -hmm. Jesse is way more comfortable talking about the issues of the day right. than bringing him back to whatever the hell happened right. to him, even if it's an obvious uh, an obvious place to anchor a conversation. Yeah, I don't mind talking about it in part because I'm pissed. <laughs> and so for me, this is sort of like my little revenge is telling my story. I mean, she got really weird. Like after I wrote this piece... I got not just dropped by my friends, but strangers made stickers with pictures of my face calling me a Nazi sympath and a Jordan Peterson apologist. <laughs> so embarrassing. Um, and put them around Seattle. You know, someone put a someone I didn't see this, but someone apparently took a, a picture of like my Twitter, um, my like my face on Twitter and put it like glued it to a urinal in a gay bar that I used to go to. There's like bars all over Seattle that have graffiti calling me names. I think that's fucking crazy. And I think that most yeah. of the people who, who did this stuff are not familiar with my work. I think that the differences between what we actually believe are super narrow. 
And, yeah. you know, it sucked. And I had colleagues who were really unsupportive. My, the colleagues who mattered, my bosses for, for my, the stranger was the one place that I worked at where I really got along with my bosses and they were, they were great. They were supportive, but my bosses were Dan Savage and Tim Keck, who's the guy who founded the onion. So there are people who really do have these like old school values and commitments to things like free, like free speech. But my actual colleagues were not supportive at all. I mean, at one point I had to, um, I had to go to this like, like an actual struggle session, like with members of the trans community, all of whom are trans women, where they basically yelled at me and like snapped to each other when they wanted to agree with, with whatever they were, you know, doing that thing instead of clapping, you snap. And, um, it was horrible. And my, and my, I was there with like a few colleagues and they just sat there and nobody defended me. And it was, the whole thing was wow. fucked up. Um, but now I don't have to deal with, like, I have to deal with Jesse, which has its own pains. <laughs> But <laughs> yeah, that's, so you're paying the price in yeah. a way. I mean, everybody's yeah. gotten something out of this yeah. deal. And, and plus, uh, like, and things like socially, all of this stuff has been really, really hard and it continues to be hard. Like maybe one now it's slowed down, but it is not uncommon for me to realize that somebody I've been friends with for a long time has unfriended me on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or whatever. Hmm. I'm not saying anything. This happens on a fairly regular basis. Yeah. Somebody I've known for 20 years. And they don't, they never say anything. They just like quietly block me from their lives. That shit continues to happen. But I also have really benefited from all this. So the social stuff has been really hard, but my career is going really well. I have a successful business. I don't have a boss. Like all of the things that I've always wanted have come true and part of that isn't just because of the work that I've done, but it's because of the the response to the work that I've done. So the people who yeah. put up the stickers calling me names helped me. They helped me. Like, they're fucking idiots, clearly. But, <laughs> like, I can thank them for probably a certain portion of my, you know, Substack subscriptions. It's always a strange thing to think about. Um, I wasn't pushed out in that sort of way socially. I was fired in 2017. It, it from ESPN, a lot of there are a lot of rumor. You're not in the room when they make that decision. Yeah. A lot of the rumor is that it's because of the aforementioned uh, journalist represented by CAA took over. I had written something critical, and so there was a bit of revenge. I don't know if that's true. Mm -hmm. I, I really don't, but I ultimately don't care because I was miserable yeah. having that job. And so there's this this funny thing that can happen where maybe some of the people who mean you ill and extract real costs uh, from you help you in this bizarre way. And that changes just how you emotionally relate to whatever yeah. whatever happened. Totally. It's hard to maintain. It's hard to hold on to that resentment yeah. or that anger if ultimately – you're in a you're in a better place, but it's a it's a weird thing. I mean, um, did you go through a process of thinking the truth would set you free and feeling destabilized when you learned that no people are just mimetic and they're yes. just it's all vibes. Yes. It's all vibes. I totally did. I wrote a piece after this after this crazy response to this article that I wrote, which is in no way transphobic at all. Uh, people were burning stacks of the paper and sending me video of it. It was really unhinged shit, and um. And so I wrote a response to that and getting the response out, sort of like purging it, sort of made me feel better. It didn't change anything about the way that other people viewed it, but it did make me feel better just to get it on the record. But it was yeah. totally destabilizing. It was like realizing because I had never, I grew up and have, and like always assumed that, you know, there's two political tribes, there's right and there's left, there's blue and there's red and there's red. 
And blue is always right. Left is always right. That's kind of how I always live my life. And I, this was the first time that I saw like if my side, and of course this is, these moms are made out of individuals. So it's, it's kind of weird to generalize about this as though it's an entire political party. It's not, but just as a heuristic, you know, if I, if my side is wrong about this, what else are we wrong about? Mm. And that was totally destabilizing. Ultimately, I think it was really good because it made me much more open-minded. It made me much more skeptical. So I'm a much better journalist. I think I'm a, I'm a better news consumer. It hasn't totally changed the way that I voted. I'm still a Democrat, but I am opening. I am open to voting for Republicans if the if the correct if the right candidate came by or Libertarians or whoever. I'm no longer um, I'm no longer a team player in the way that I always was, and I think that's ultimately made me a much better thinker. I'm way less popular, but you know what? I don't like mm-hmm. brunch anyway, so whatever. Well, I mean, you retain the ability to be unpredictable, uh, which is unusual in the media landscape. Um, it is this, it's such a strange thing to go through of once you come to the conclusion that the truth won't set you free and it might actually hurt you, then how do you make professional decisions? I remember, um, before you guys had a podcast, Jesse had his own thing. I can't remember what year it was. Maybe it was 2019. I I don't know. And he invited me on the podcast episode. I have this vague memory of him kind of warning me that he, he was this, sort of toxified uh, person and that uh, that might not be great for me, that there's some exposure for for going on there. And yes, cooties, you get the the Jesse cooties. And (laughs) I I remember thinking to myself, you know, that's potentially true. Like it's unpredictable. I don't know what happens if I go on there, but I don't personally think that this guy is a bad guy. I don't personally think that what he wrote is untrue or was written in bad faith. And if I feel that way and I reject his offer, that's unethical. Yeah. That's really unethical for me to do that and go, ah, oh, the block's too hot. I can't, I can't do it. You know, th- there was just something about that, that, that just, I, I'm not, I'm not making out, I'm not making out like I'm a hero for going on Jesse's podcast, but, uh, but I'm saying that I, I think that's the heuristic. It was basically, okay, my internal sense is this is the case. And I just don't want to go off everybody's vibes. And that's scary to me. That's yeah. scary to me that I'm going to be rejecting people and telling people that I don't want to associate with them over stuff I don't think is even true. That's yeah. just not how I want to live. Yeah. I, no, I think you, you made the right decision, although it is his podcast in particular. It's maybe not the right decision there. I, yeah. And, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I have sort of the same impulse as you. I will say it is not always easy to live by those principles. And there are so no. there are some people who are whose reputation, deserved or not, is so toxic that you know hitching your wagon to this person is going to it really would be a be a, it would just come back and haunt yeah. you over and over again so i'm not going to pretend that i haven't made that no it's that calculation. So, it's hard to yeah there are people in my head right now where i know that you know when i told you i haven't lost any friends i mean that's it, it still could happen yeah. and they're definitely podcast guests and my being heuristic with a podcast guest is can i have an interesting conversation and that's my heuristic, but there are other people. If I had those those people on, um, they would be there would be a lot of anger. Right. There are people who, in my industry, are highly stigmatized individuals, which 
because I have a bit of um, uh, an interest in taboo that makes me interested in them. Mm-hmm. But other people, it would be it would be no go. Yeah. I, I'm thinking of specifically Jason Whitlock, uh, who is on the Blaze, the conservative. Um, what do we even call it? Website and a former sports journalist, formerly a you know at ESPN, black conservative now. Um, I'm very intrigued by whatever his journey was, but if I were to have him on my podcast, and I'm not saying I won't, but I'm just saying as a hypothetical, if he was on the podcast, there would be a lot of uh, rending of garments out there among former colleagues and friends and everything else because there are just people like that. They elicit that response. And again, it makes it easier perhaps to not specifically turn down his offer if he offered to be on, but it's just easier for me not to send that email and do it of my own volition. Totally. Totally. Yeah. There are definitely people in my world who uh, also fit that bill. And I, I try to like, you know, I really do think talking across party lines is really important. And like I was invited for, for one, I was invited to go on Tucker Carlson's show last summer a couple times. And I thought really hard about it because not his, not the like the main cable show, but that like side show that he does and that wood oh, panel. Oh, the sit down. The sit down. Is that what it's called? In his like cabin in Maine. I think it's a brilliant business story, yeah. but that's a whole other thing. And yeah. I thought really hard about it because I, and I was really tempted to do it because I wanted to fly first class to Maine. Okay. Not entirely that, but because I, <laughs> I thought, you know, he, like I'm a, I'm a lesbian. I'm a gay person. I'm. I am not I'm not like a woke social justice warrior. I think it would be good for his audience who I think have gotten the wrong message mm. about normal everyday gay and lesbian people. It would be good for them to see someone normal. I think this would actually this would actually help my my like wider cause. And also, I believe in talking across party lines even when people disagree. And I talked to a lot of people whose whose opinion I value who just told me over and over again, don't do this. You can't do this. It'll be bad for your career. I won't respect you if you do this. And I, I decided not to do it. It might have been the wrong decision. It might have been the right decision because after seeing him in conversation with Ben Smith, who is Ben Smith is much smarter than me, and Tucker just ran all over him. Uh, so I might not have been able to, to get my point across. They've got a weird frenemies yeah. dynamic, Tucker Carlson and uh, and Ben Smith. Yeah. I have one Tucker Carlson interaction when I was an intern at Salon, and I it was Obama's first 100 days, um, and so they were they were trying to get everybody to write a piece. It was such a different era because at Salon.com, right. they were going, okay, well, we need some conservatives right. and some Republicans right. to give their take on it. And I called him, and he frankly sounded loaded it was middle of the day. He called my boss, uh, Joan Walsh, a cunt, and said that she just needs uh, needs some dick or something like that. I can't wow. even remember. Wow. Um, and it, it was just – I mean I know a lot of people – it was so weird back then too. This is, by the way, the Washington Post a few years ago reported this. I wasn't really? pushing it. But they, they – <laughs> It was time to because they're you know very um, angry at, at Tucker Carlson's show. So this was this was the thing that was going to take Tucker Carlson down. Obviously, yeah, right. that, yeah. That, that that this thing could happen. But what's so funny is that the guy pushing for me to write it because I didn't have evidence of it happening. I wasn't recording the conversation. I called him back the next day, and he was sober then, and you know wise to mm-hmm. whatever was happening. But the guy pushing to have it out there was Glenn Greenwald. Because he was at Salon back then. Interesting. And now, God, weird. Greenwald- oh man, shit has changed so much. 
<laughs> and now Greenwald is on Tucker Carlson yeah. show all the time. And um, I think Carlson has gotten over addiction issues. And so maybe that factored into it. To me, that was just a strange snippet in my life. But the Greenwald argument was that you should write it because that is illustrative. That's such a Greenwaldian illustrative uh-huh. of the ideology and everything else. And now and now he's on Carlson's show. Now, yeah. as to your decision, I don't know. I mean, the visual medium it's a different thing in getting you branded. It's yeah. sort of people share that that screenshot yeah. of you and then it's this sort of assumption, this guilt by association. I, I've been invited on Fox News uh, primetime. I don't know. I'm like, so like primetime, like not the shitty times. Yeah. I got invited on the, I got invited <laughs> the good slots, good slots since doing the sub stack. And, and I have not done it. And I don't really have a moral objection to it necessarily but it was just a comment. It was just one of these things of, am I going to drive into a studio and do the yeah. whole, like, I just, I, I kind of like doing whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it, which I think is why you and I, well, I have the best job in the world because you have to deal with Jesse, True. but it's why we have very good jobs. Right. Right. Yes. There is also that. I also did not want to fly across the country. Uh, it was going to take like three days to do the whole thing. Uh, but yeah, I make those, I make those, those calculus, those decisions on a fairly regular basis. I mean, I'm never, I'm, you know, shows that are really disappointing, like on the media, they're never going to invite me on their show. You've, you've no. done on the media, right? No, Have you um, I've, I've never done on the media. I used to do a hang up and listen, which is in that kind of world. And then I had a, I would say cordial back and forth where I, I pushed back on what the, uh, what the host, who's a very smart guy, Josh Levine, um, over at Slate, it was about NBA ratings, and I I actually believe that the political signaling has a material impact on a sport's popularity, which you know I've been through this territory on this website certainly, but there's something very odd to me that people who advance the notion that America is shot through with white supremacy and it's a part of everything, then turn around and say, but it will have no impact yeah. on the viewership, like none. Yeah. It won't like when the players are advancing social justice messaging. Um, that's necessary because America is so corrupted to its rotten core. Uh, the fans are all just going to slack jawed nod in agreement with all of it and want it to be part of the proceedings and will not it will not influence the their attraction to the brand. Anyway, I you know I basically he said he doesn't think it's the case, and I said why not? And frankly, I didn't think he had anything for me at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, but. I, I haven't been invited back. I don't know if maybe they – again, we all have these calls we make. Maybe there were just always options. Maybe I wasn't uh, blacklisted. I don't know. But that's that's the last time um, I can recall being invited into onto an outlet from that world. Sometimes – I think sometimes the local NPR outlet invites me on to talk Warriors because they're still a little bit behind. <laughs> <laughs> they're a little bit you know hey this guy was the last guy in our in our book who could talk about the local basketball team uh-huh. and um so i think i've gotten maybe a few invites there but i i i didn't receive any sort of public yes cancellation i hate using that word but what else are we going right. to call it that you did so it's a little bit i'm more in a vague yeah. vague world with that stuff yeah um my so I I I know one like actual white supremacist the guy who lives across from me he's not uh, he's not a member <laughs> of any gang or any any particular club but he's an eighty six year old Navy vet who's super racist and I um I asked him 
and I've been reminded of his racism frequently, but I asked him, I made the mistake recently of asking him if he watches the NBA. And um, oh, based God. on his response, I would say that um, hardened racists do not watch the NBA, or at least haven't watched the NBA <laughs> since uh, yeah. since they started allowing black players. <laughs> yeah, it's a very specific kind of racist who watches uh, a white supremacist racist yeah. who watches the NBA yeah. just uh, as a hate watch, yeah. I suppose, yeah. you know, it's like the media matters people who watch Tucker Carlson's show is totally. what they're doing. Yeah. That's, uh, well, it did. That's part of what happened is that the NBA became this proxy for the Democratic Party, for black people in America, it's all more complicated. And to what we were talking about earlier, it gets really funny because a lot of um, college-educated white liberal journalists then start projecting their beliefs and values upon the players who do not share them, maybe share them on BLM and like nothing yes. else. I would imagine. And, I mean, like even polling, like not even NBA players, but look at polling among – like there's one group – of Democrats who are way to the right of the average Democrat on like trans issues and gay issues. And that's black Democrats. They tend to be more religious. They are way more socially conservative. You don't even have to look at the NBA to see that. Yeah. But that is, I think, an uncomfortable oh. truth among the white liberal press. I, I mean, if you want a evidence of that, there's all this controversy over the NHL trying to get certain teams to wear Pride yeah. Night jerseys. Um, and some teams say yes, and other teams say no, we can't. But some of our players reject it. They don't even fucking try with the NBA. Yeah. That's the that's the dog that's not barking. And it's funny. I, I haven't written about it, but it's it's just funny observing all of it and observing all the culture clash and the arguments. And I I go, you know, the NBA plays at the exact same time of year as the NHL, the exact same season structure, and you don't see any of this. And yeah, it's not it's not coincidental. Mm -hmm. It's just it wouldn't. It would not fly. It would be a PR disaster because it is a more conservative culture with with respect to that. Oh, I, just I mean, evident. I wonder why the NHL has even made this a, a an issue. Like, are NHL oh, players really interested in gay shit? Like, what is the you've come you've come to the right place, Katie. <laughs> I've written it. A, a very overlong article on this. Um, like a lot of things, it's a few things converging, but one of them is that sports is getting less popular with kids. The NHL is the second oldest sport. They've got this existential terror and they're worrying about how to connect to the kids because they're an older, whiter sport. So they're hiring consultants. They're hiring um, sort of a czar of diversity. I can't remember what the actual title she has is. It's very lengthy to to gussy up their sport, make them more popular with a diversify, uh, a diversifying North America. And they're so committed to this, Katie. I shit you not that they have something called the power players. Kids age 13 to 18 years old, about 27 of them split down the middle gender wise, although some of the kids undefinable gender because that's more uh, in vogue these days. And the CMO of the NHL sits with them in a biweekly meeting and literally applies their messaging and their marketing advice. And I've I went so far as to, and I, this is another thing that we can grouse and complain about. I actually tried to call people and report things sometimes. I tracked down some of these kids who are very nice kids, by the way. Um, and their response to me was like, yeah, I thought it was kind of a gimmick, but they actually do what we tell them to do. <laughs> and the kids, obviously, because they're younger – 
um, are more they they're more inclined to give a messaging like yes we the league Knicks needs to take a stand on social justice issues it's got to happen. Yeah, and so because there's some sort of disconnect, and this I would often see this in the NBA too, where they would hire people to be the social media managers, or there is there's this big gap between what we would call uh, basketball ops and the business side, and there's a bit of never the twain shall meet. Mm-hmm. When I was covering the Warriors, there was a local gym that people were members of, and the basketball ops guys would play there. And so with the business guys and the basketball ops guys at a certain point retreated to using the practice court because they were sick of the business guys trying to ingratiate themselves because the basketball ops, that's where you want to be. That's where the juice is. And, you know, but what happens is that people on the marketing side have no sense of the culture of the thing they're trying to market and what the guys are really like and are as dumb as the fans are. So that's how you have a situation with the NHL where they go, okay, well, this is what the kids want, what the kids are telling us to do. I'm the CMO. Um, We should make it happen right now. And there's nobody in that room going, "Uh, I know these players. I don't think this is going to go. We might've bitten off a little more than we can chew. So, it's a combination of hiring people to positions that aren't meshed in this and me- whatever the word I'm making up is, but embedded in the sport, um, kind of just the way things have gone generally of this is how we need to market ourselves. And then this other huge factor, which is that apparently only 15% of American teenagers say they like watching sports. And that's the unsolvable problem that's informing a lot of the how do you do fellow kids that you're seeing from these sports leagues and the NHL has an especially acute case of it relative to the other leagues. Is participation in sports dropping as well besides pickleball? That's yeah, pickleball is everywhere. Yeah. God damn pickleball. <laughs> um, yeah, somebody needs to apply whatever's going on there. I believe that uh, participation is dropping, but that's kind of yeah, I need to read more surveys on that because that's a natural follow-up. I don't think it's dropping at nearly the rate of viewership just because there are so many entertainment options and kids mm-hmm. who might be inclined to play sports would rather watch other kids play video games right. than watch than watch sports. Right. Um, I mean, we're always getting fatter and lazier, yeah. so it would make sense that it's dropping um, and the kids yeah. aren't as into it. Well, and not, the, the but, population isn't yeah. increasing either. So unless you like uh, increase the, the you know the the population of immigrants or the birth rate isn't increasing, there's going to be these tensions in in every sector of American life in some ways or American commerce. You know, and I guess that's is the problem with the sort of uh, forever growth mindset. It's, yeah, the yeah. embedded growth principle, right. which is the other thing. It's never good enough just right. to have what you have. And I think that's gotten these leagues into some trouble and these businesses into some trouble. It's a combination. It's so complicated. I think it happened with Nike, and I wrote a big piece on that about how there is the business prerogative of Nike is the biggest apparel company, arguably, and they they have way more male customers than female customers. So the light bulb goes off and I call it the undecided whale of, well, we could get this whale out there that's undecided. That's going to absorb more of our focus and our core customer base. And it just results in a lot of cringe advertising that I don't think appeals to anybody uh, at all. Dylan uh, Mulvaney might uh, fit into that category. <laughs> I am fascinated by Mulvaney and all these various deals with all these qu- – Yeah, the, the, Bud Light, the, the strangest. Yeah. How, Bud Light? 
Come on. I mean, I'm, how these all go down. That's, yeah. that's something that I'm, I'm fascinated, uh, fascinated with. Um, but there is that business prerogative, but it's not just about business because, and I make this argument in the hockey piece, if it was just about business right now, they have all these initiatives, all this funding for, we need to make hockey big in the inner city mm-hmm. to diversify. That's what we need. And I, I look around and just logically, I live in a suburb. These parents have money. Yeah. They're looking for something to do. Our version of pickleball out here for the kids is jujitsu mm-hmm. because it's just a way to get the rowdy kids to blow off steam and it's novel and it's something to do. Hockey could be the jujitsu out here. Yeah. It's the Bay Area. We don't have a relationship with winter, but you could build a rink. You're going to have much better ROI. And by the way, you're going to have much better ROI based on what the people in the NHL are saying when they're declaring that we need to do this and build, you know, rinks uh, in inner city America all over because they themselves say the kids don't have a connection with it. They don't have the money for the resources. They don't have, you know, they, they go down the laundry list of why this is impossible and then go, we need to do it versus it just seems like a layup to use another sports term to do it out in the suburbs. But that seems morally bad right. to say, we need to spread to the affluent suburbs right. where we get the – so something's happening where there is the business prerogative, but there's also the kind of crime think of I'm not allowed to think businessy in certain directions and I'm allowed to think businessy in other directions. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if I'm being especially cogent and I apologize for you tripping into something that I wrote 5,000 words on. Well, I, I mean I think that's a, a really good point. They need a new Mighty Ducks. I think this is this is nah, the key for NHL. Yes. They need Mighty Ducks four. Yeah, yeah, that'll, yeah, that'll that, attract the uh, the inner city youth. I mean, Mighty Ducks with some beautiful corporate synergy yeah. uh, right there, <laughs> where they they created the team, the Disneyfied team, and then unveiled the actual team name for the team uh, in Anaheim. I I'm just I have a nose for that of cynical. Business maneuvers. I didn't even get to why I thought the Tucker Carlson sit down in the mm-hmm. fake main cabin was a smart one, but <laughs> it, it seems that seems to be a way for him to be create a bulwark against advertising boycotts. And yeah. he creates this subscription service, and he'll just do sort of televised podcast, and then they have hundreds of that. It's got to be you know over ten million dollars. I don't know how much money it is, but that that seemed to be a fairly savvy business story if i guess the press outside of maybe wall street journal wasn't allergic to just right. writing a dispassionate recap of it um yeah uh i've i've gotten uh i've gotten far afield here uh do you ever see is public radio salvageable katie do you ever oh see God. it reclaiming its glory days and what do you think about it back then allowed it to have those glory days? Because it did seem – it's not just that the past was better because I don't think public radio was great in the 1980s. I think there was something in the 2000s that was fer- uh, fertile and creative and and kind of wonderful that's been lost. I mean public radio is dealing with the same issues that like the NHL is, is dealing with. Their audience is aging. Mm. It is old. And so they're trying to diversify by investing in things like podcasts that no one will listen to. So they just went through these, 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 this round of layoffs. They cut three podcasts that they'd invested a lot of resources to. One of, one of the podcasts is it was a, a hip hop show. I never listened to it myself called Louder Than a Riot. I heard from people with NPR that that show got about 10,000 downloads an episode. 
Yes. That's nothing. <laughs> I'm doing. I'm not doing it helpful. My yeah. eyes are telling the story, and this is an audio podcast, <laughs> yes. so uh, I was is, I was reacting. Uh, yeah. Well, hey, that's a great that that, that that's a respectable for um, a paywall. <laughs> Yeah, for a, 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 out some straps. Yeah, a paywalled show. <laughs> this is not a paywalled show. And this is not respectful for a show that has invested a lot of time and money and jobs into yeah. this. I'm sure your show gets a lot more than that. And how many people do you have working on it? You know, um, so, so I think that's one of the issues is that they're also dealing with an aging audience and then they're investing, they're investing in these shows that aren't natural, that aren't going to be natural listen or that aren't sort of, uh, natural segues with their existing audience. What, you know, and then and then the terrestrial radio, like, it hasn't become, it hasn't evolved in a way that I think is interesting. Like, on the weekends, you know, I turn on public radio and I basically hop from station to station trying to run away from, wait, wait, don't tell me. You know, <laughs> they, like, like, they aired, public radio aired car talk reruns until after, like, after one of the car talk guys had died for, for a very long time. Oh, I would love the car talk guys take a public radio yeah, right now. Yeah, I, I mean, I think they actually would probably be better off re-airing re- re- those reruns now than some of the shows that they're, that they're actually airing. So the terrestrial yeah. audience, I doubt is growing. I'm speculating here, but I highly doubt it's growing. Like Red, Red Scare has replaced Click yeah. and Clack in my mind as <laughs> people of similar voices who yeah. have chemistry. You continue that. Totally. Totally. Um, and then so – and then the podcast, you know, the podcast market is pretty saturated. It's hard to have a hit. And so they've made these sort of niche products that aren't that – that their existing audience isn't attracted to and that the, the people that they want to attract are also not interested in. So – I don't know what the answer is. I think that they also, like every other organization, need to grapple with the fact that that forever growth isn't possible um, and maybe focus on what they're good at. You know, and it doesn't it doesn't help that I think at, at a lot of the shows, what's happened is that I'm sure the same thing has happened in sports journalism. They hire these people who are young, just out of college and have just different values than the actual audience. So I talked to a lot of my parents' friends who are in their 70s, who are the people who've been listening and supporting public radio for 40 years. They can't stand the new shit. They can't they yeah. you know, every time you turn on the radio, it's about race. People, the existing audience doesn't like that. And the existing audience is, yes, like mostly old white people. And so if you're alienating the terrestrial, the existing terrestrial audience, but you're not act, you're not actually capturing new more diverse audiences you're kind of fucking yourself yeah yeah and then you get away from this principle i think is forgotten about so often especially i i see media sometimes break down why something is resonating or what market it's appealing to and there's something to that but we forget that some things are good mm-hmm. make something good yeah. your podcast is good there's thought behind it There's, as you were saying, you're telling a story, you're trying to surprise for whatever reason, that seems to be the last consideration. If I were to bring up, if I were to bring up your podcast on Twitter right now and tweet that I thought this or that about, I'm sure a lot of the responses, the critical responses wouldn't even be weighing in on whether it was good. Right. And so much of the conversation I think has been a distraction from the most basic prerogative there is, which is make a quality product. Right. And 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 what's so fascinating now i think and i i loved 
the reply all bon appetit Ouroboros mm-hmm. uh, that you covered on, on your podcast. You covering them, covering them, <laughs> yeah. covering them. Yeah. Um, That's just, a and I don't even I don't even know how to get through the expository on whatever the hell happened there. I, from my memory, and please fill in any blanks because you did the podcast on it. Um, Reply All was a very successful podcast uh, that did stories on the internet culture of today. Mm-hmm. And I didn't listen to it. It seemed like seemed like Jesse, frankly, had more reverence for it than you did. But it had a lot of fans mm-hmm. and uh, did quality work. And Bon Appetit was a cooking magazine slash YouTube channel that I am very aware of and was a big fan of what they were doing and thought they were an anchor to Windward during the early pandemic that kind of went up in smoke because the main guy, the boss man, uh, photos came out of him and his wife dressed up like Puerto Ricans for Halloween from like a decade ago, which again, is one of these things as this is what we said earlier. Like, you're not allowed to laugh, right. but it's just really funny because it's so right. fucking stupid. Right. It's like such a stupid. It's yes. Is that bigoted? Yeah. Is it so stupid that you could laugh at it? Right. Yeah. Um, it, and was just, it socially but, like, was this considered bigoted at the time? No. No, people were again. We're we're lying to ourselves about what the what back in the day was like right. often versus right. what it's like and what our social conventions were. Right. And this is a whole other topic of the flattening of time and how we have to pretend this premise that everything then is everything now. And I'm going to sound like a Bill Maher new rule that keep going. <laughs> um, where were we? So uh, the reply all was about how problematic Bon Appetit was, which uh, prompted a former Reply All um, worker to accuse Reply All of what Reply All was accusing Bon Appetit of. And then I, I like they all don't exist. I mean, maybe they exist right. in some capacity, but they all pretty much don't exist anymore. Yeah. The Mexican standoff, as it were, the Latinx standoff mm-hmm. um, has happened and everybody's dead. Yeah, the, that's... that's pretty much what happened. <laughs> the, the the guy who complained was not a Reply All employee, but he was a Gimlet employee. Oh, and, sorry. Yes, yeah. yeah, but other than that, you're pretty much right on. Yeah, and the show, uh, the show basically combusted under the weight of its own self righteousness, which was really too bad. And that was another show like NPR shows. And the two guys who who made the show, PJ Boat and Alex uh, Goldman, had come from on the media. Um, and so they were trained in public radio at a time when it was public radio was more interesting before these various reckonings. And both of them sort of gave in, I think, to that impulse to do the current thing. And uh, and it ruined the show. The show got went from very interesting to very boring. And then and it basically became super fucking woke in a very boring way. And then but that wasn't enough. Right. And so uh, so they had to excommunicate one of the hosts and then the other one was just an absolute shitbag anyway so the show uh the show mm-hmm. the show died it is no more and this was one of the most popular consistently one of the most popular podcasts in america it's unbelievable and i think that we've been a nerd to it almost that some of the great works of art in our midst cannot withstand the weight of all this crazy ephemeral bullshit yeah. and recrimination and we've just kind of – there has been this denial of it almost that anybody who talks about it is engaging in some sort of cliche concern trolling or I don't know what. But I find it to be frankly deeply tragic. Mm-hmm. I, I think it sucks that there's so much good art that can't exist because of this thing, this this just weird – 
I, like collective neurotic, I don't even know what to call it, that makes it so it's not even I always argue with my best friend on this about whether the issues with content are if it's mainly economic or mainly this. But I think this is good evidence that it's mainly this. Bon Appetit and Reply All were both highly profitable. Right, right. I think the magazine probably still exists. Um, yeah, and, and there are those things that are really too big to fail, like all of the controversy around J.K. Rowling. She's not going to go broke. She's not going to lose many business opportunities because she is such a success. But I think that's a pretty limited uh, limited um, number yeah. of people who can survive that sort of pressure. Yeah, and I'm fascinated. I don't have a good answer. Is it – I, I don't know. It's almost like you, you've definitely talked about how every internet community turns toxic and we've just all become one big internet community. Yeah. I mean, politics is now a, a type of fandom and there's nothing more annoying and toxic than an internet fandom. Yeah. Uh, well, um, speaking of toxicity in the discourse, let's end on this. I was at the Substack offices. I don't I don't work there. I have a Substack. I, I was there to do the 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 podcast, uh, Substack the podcast. Um, and the offices, Katie, were all a buzz about an argument mm. that you have with Jesse mm. over his Twitter participation or lack thereof. It really seemed to strike a nerve. This this argument you guys had. Um, I think it, it was regarded as a particularly sincere argument. It was a little bit outside the banter. Mm-hmm. Um, both sides were represented well. Uh, I'm trying to even remember how to explain it because there's some terminology about what you do to your account when you no longer use it. Uh-huh. And to my memory, to my memory, Jesse feels like an addict when it comes to Twitter. He thinks it brings out the worst in him. Which is true. He, both of those things are is, correct. Both of those things are correct. So he he has shut down his account and you were arguing that he should at least maintain the account. Like yeah. to be you know, I think the argument's gotten taken as he should be tweeting all the time. You eventually want to get him there and destroy his life, Absolutely. obviously. Absolutely. But but you're just trying to the, the thing you're you know, the what's the Mott and what's the Bailey? Right. I can't remember. Right. The Mott you're trying to establish is that he just maintains the account. Right. Um, how is that going? Do you think you're making progress? Well, he's going to have to come back. So, okay. So this is what happens now. So Jesse disabled his account. I thought he should just like take a fucking break. I thought he should really just give me the password and I wouldn't give it back to him. And then I would tweet every once in a while about, I don't know, the beauty of the feature film cuties. That Mm. that was, that was my plan. (laughs) Um, and, uh, and he, but he didn't. He disabled his account, and he did this at this at the at really the wrong time, and so it started this entire shitstorm. He was trending on Twitter for days because people thought that he disabled his account because he was being called out for these. It's a long, boring story, but called, but basically because he was being called out on some perceived mistake he made reporting. He didn't actually yeah. make a mistake, and so my point was just just stop tweeting. Give give me the keys, or just give it to somebody else. Just maintain the account. But don't don't tweet. I understand that he is addicted to it and he is bad at it and he gets in these like slap fights that are totally unnecessary and time consuming. But now what he does when he sees something on he's still he still looks at Twitter. So now when he sees on something on Twitter that bothers him, he sends it to me. So <laughs> he and I think what he's trying to do is goad me into getting into fights that he would normally be getting in. 
I'm like, mm. I won't fall for this. I do this too. If I see something that that I find egregious, but I don't want to comment on because I don't want to deal with the backlash, I just don't want to deal with it. I'll send it to Glenn Greenwald. When Glenn sees something that he that he thinks is egregious, but he doesn't want to get involved, he sends it to Michael Tracy. So Jesse is mm. treating me like his Glenn Greenwald or Michael Tracy. I am not his Glenn Greenwald. I will not be be pressured into doing his uh, his dirty work for him. I, I had a strange visual, visualization in my mind. It was like that chart of the food chain with the two uh, 2D cutouts of the various creatures, but it was human centipede instead. <laughs> that, that's what it that's what it was in this instance. Um, I mean, I I thought it was a really interesting argument. I felt like I you were correct. I'm on your side. Thank you. Uh, you divulged that actually on the podcast, I which I should have asked you if I could first. Which, which is a HIPAA violation, <laughs> and that's not okay. Um, but I, I felt like you were correct, but you had the less easy to take position. I felt right. like the more socially acceptable position is that Twitter is bad. It's good that he's getting clean. Why are you making your right. co-host mentally? I'm giving uh, him unwell? the needle. Yeah. Well, he's wrong yeah. about this and he, uh, and yeah, he's not stopped reading Twitter because I'm getting the text messages. He will come back at some point. Um, and now in like even more annoying now, you know, he's constantly being defamed by the by like various different sources. So now he wants to address those things on the podcast rather than doing it on Twitter. <laughs> I don't want to spend the, the podcast addressing what Vox is saying about Jesse. I really don't. That's what Twitter is for. He will come back at some point because I'm gonna stop let him letting him talk yeah. about this and then he'll need an outlet. He has his own Substack too. He could use a Substack. It's such a hard balance to strike because there there is the audience member who wants you to engage in that back and forth, but it's so difficult to know when you're being attacked, mm -hmm. what aspect of your rebuttal is interesting to people right. versus what aspect is meaningful to you right. because that fight or flight. I always got a kick out of Sam Harris getting mad at the aforementioned Glenn Greenwald, who for whatever reason, we're bringing him up all the time, but his, just his hyper rationalist uh, beginning of his podcast, uh, Glenn Greenwald <laughs> called me a twerp. <laughs> In a way, I regard it as bad faith. <laughs> it's just <laughs> such a strange thing. I always thought, you know, we don't need to get mired in whatever this whole back and forth is and whatever way you're doing it. But I understand it. Totally. The people who attack totally. me unfairly. Yeah. I want to destroy them. Totally. I hate them. Yes. I mean, that's yes. it's very human. But because that brings that out of me, then I, I have to be especially wary because I think generally with these things, it's not the criticism that kills you. It's the unforced air it inspires. Yeah. But it's so it's so hard to know what to do in the face of that stuff. It totally is. And it's like in our show, because so much of our show is media criticism. And so these attacks on mostly on Jesse, less so on me, um, are good examples of, of, of the, the, the things that we're complaining about, sort of bigger picture, lack of fact checking, not asking people for comment, things like that. So there are so it does sort of serve a larger purpose. But I think it gets tedious to the audience. It definitely gets tedious to me. I am guilty of this as well. We did like 40 minutes the other day on a on an article that this complete fucking moron Jude Doyle wrote and that like got some shit incorrect about me. I am just as just as guilty of it mm. as Jesse is. Um, but yes, he will have to come back to Twitter at some point. He can't keep texting me. He can't keep using me as his as his outlet. Yeah. 
Yeah, he can't. He's not even like an outlet, like his air filter. Yeah. Uh, is is that what the muffler does? Yeah. I I don't know. I'm like a coastal yeah. coastal Jew. Yeah. Uh, what does the muffler do? Is something, that what it does? I, it does. It, it does something. Um. Well, this is this has been wonderful, Katie. Uh, is there anything? I have a sense of what you might want to plug. Uh, is there anything you want to plug uh, for the outro? Not really. <laughs> it's just I don't do anything besides the podcast anymore. I'm a, yeah, I'm we plug the preser- We we plug the preservation of Jesse's Twitter account. Yeah. Uh, it's really like watching the Library of Alexandria burn. Mm-hmm. That it's just been destroyed uh, for now and might be destroyed permanently. And we have lost access to uh, many a squabble, many a petty fight, and some actual genuine reporting and some disgusting pizza photos. Give. Katie, the keys is the final mention here. Yes. Thanks so much. This has been great. So good to talk to you. Thanks, Susan.